Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. On Tuesday, Democrats made history. It was the first thing President Biden mentioned during a Wednesday press conference with reporters. We lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. And we had the best midterm for governors since 1986. While Republicans are still on track to reclaim a majority, the size of their advantage will be much smaller than the red wave many had expected. Across the country, Democrats successfully defended seats that Republicans had confidently expected to pick up, while also adding wins in gubernatorial races in five swing states that flipped from Trump to Biden in 2020. There are a lot of explanations for why the Democrats did better than expected. A backlash to the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, exhaustion with Donald Trump and some of the candidates that he championed, big turnout for Democrats among Gen Z and millennials. In general, the coalition of voters that turned out to oppose Donald Trump in 2018 and 2020 remained intact in 2022. There are also a lot of races that turned on local issues, where none of these common explanations seem to tell the full story. It was a strange election, and we're all going to be unpacking the results for a while. So we wanted to get to know some of these Democrats and hear why they think they were able to defy history. This week, someone who defeated a Republican who has served for 26 years. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Greg Landsman is the newly elected congressman from the 1st District of Ohio, which includes large parts of Cincinnati. I think the message from this race has to be... You're, you know, you're not going to be successful if you're going to be a big lie, anti-choice extremist. In a mostly Republican-controlled state like Ohio, Landsman unseated a 13-term incumbent, Republican Steve Shabbat. A key part of Landsman's pitch to voters? Just being a normal politician. Someone voters wouldn't associate with the chaos and unending culture war of the Trump years. You know, my opponent was obsessed with, with Biden and Pelosi. I don't think he realizes that... That's not what people are talking about. People aren't sitting there being like, man, Nancy Pelosi. If I started a conversation and said, I want to talk about Kevin McCarthy, people would be like, wait, what? Politico's resident Ohioan and Playbook co-author, Rachel Bade. All right, checking one, two, three. Talk to Landsman over Zoom a couple of days after his victory. Okay, so we're ready to start on this. Thank you so much for doing it. I appreciate it. And with that, Rachel, take it away. Just to start off sort of big picture, we obviously did not see the red wave that many Republicans were predicting on Tuesday. And that is in no small part because of campaigns like yours. Um, how were you able to pull this off? And just give us a little rundown of you know what you were able to do here. The district is a really interesting one. I mean, it's it's got the whole city of Cincinnati, which I've been you know, representing 
for the last five years as a member of city council and we're all voted in at large. So we serve the whole city and it's, you know, I love it. I, I built up a lot of trust with voters. I think that helped. And then it's got the suburban part of the county and then it even has some rural uh, communities. And so, you know, to win, you really do have to appeal to enough of uh, the city and the suburbs and, and the rural community. So there's, I think, a lot to learn here. Uh, but the big takeaway for me was that from the very beginning uh, until the, you know, the, the final vote on Tuesday, we were focused on what we heard most, which was whether you're a Democrat or an independent or for a lot of Republicans, it was, you know, we have got to be done with this chaos and extremism and so it wasn't a typical Republican versus Democrat kind of thing. And, and I think that's true in a lot of other places around the country uh, because of Trump and what happened on January uh, 6th. Uh, you know, my opponent, who'd been in Congress for decades, you know, decided to, you know, side with the insurrectionists and, and Trump and vote to overturn an election. And it's, you know, I think it's disqualifying. Certainly, it's chaotic. I mean, it's pure chaos. And, you know, that was very problematic for him. I heard it all year uh, with independents and a lot of a lot of Republicans. And then, you know, he he's known uh, for being, you know, having extreme views on reproductive freedom. And that caught up to him uh, with the Dobbs decision. Uh, so, you know, that kind of extremism is also very problematic uh, for a lot of voters. And so when you're in a competitive district, I think the message from this race has to be, you know, you're not going to be successful if you're going to be a big lie, anti-choice extremist. And I think that is a very important thing to take away. And I hope Republicans who you know, are either uncomfortable with their position with Trump and some of these extreme views, uh, whether it's about banning books or going after kids uh, uh, who are trying to sort out who they are or, you know, reproductive freedom or, or marriage. Like, don't do that. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously being from Ohio, I've seen the state trend red since I've been, you know, little. It just seems to be moving in, in that direction. And so your victory last night was sort of defied that trend. And I guess I'm wondering, do you think that Ohio writ large is more swingy than people realize it is? Or are you just very much an outlier in this and you're able to win? You know, they 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 gerrymandered these districts as much as they could. But there were three competitive districts. Uh, one was, a, you know, a Republican district that Marcy Kaptur got drawn into. The other one was a barely a Democratic district that Amelia Sykes uh, ran in and then and then this one uh, which was a, you know a democratic district by two points i mean they're very close right and all three of us won and all three of us were running against you know big lie anti-choice extremists i mean that you know they, they they there was a common thread which was you know marcy's opponent was at the Capitol. I mean, he was one of the insurrectionists. And Amelia's, you know, opponent had very strong opinions about Donald Trump and the big lie. And so, you know, I, I do think all three say something very powerful about where 
our politics has to go. For the rest of the state, it's not clear yet what this all means. Um, but I do hope that the takeaway is, you know, one, Ohio's not lost for Democrats. And two, where voters had very, uh, they had a choice where it wasn't, you know, the Democrat was going to win for sure, or the Republican was going to win for sure. It was, hey, this is very competitive. In those three districts, they said no to the big lie and to that kind of chaos. Uh, they want people who are going to protect and strengthen our democracy. And they said no to the anti-choice extremism that has put people in danger and makes Ohio less competitive. I mean, you know, talent is going to go to places where everyone is fully free. And so, you know, I, I, I hope that calms things over in, uh, on the Republican side of the aisle and they, they, they walk away from some of this chaos and extremism uh, that, you know, has really hurt uh, the country. And, you know, hopefully it, it begins to end. Let's talk a little bit about the how uh, in terms of your victory. So what was your strategy for reaching out to independent voters in your district who perhaps more more often vote for Republicans or even moderate Republicans themselves? How did you do that? So the message was really clear from the beginning. You know, on one hand, you got this big lie, anti-choice extremist who has really lost his way. He's part of the problem in, in, in DC. He's been there for decades. He, you know, takes all this corporate PAC money and votes with them and not with us. And I'm the exact opposite, you know, I don't take corporate PAC money. And my record is I work really hard in these bipartisan coalitions and I get things done and always vote for uh, the folks here, right? And I was very clear with voters about my position on reproductive freedom and the need to codify Roe. Uh, and I was very clear about the existential threat that, you know, Shabbat and Trump and others represent in terms of our democracy and what needs to happen in order to protect and, and strengthen our democracy. And I think that message just resonates with Democrats, it resonates with independents, it resonates with a growing number of Republicans, and it resonates across race, too. Folks here want calm. I'm curious, did you find that you had to specifically target some of these messages to different groups? For instance, like when it comes to the big lie and, you know, Republican extremism, obviously that resonates a lot with Democrats and it turns out a vote their votes as well. And some independents, of course, too. But when it came to trying to reach Republicans, did you find that you tailored your message more toward the abortion issue in terms of suburban women, et cetera? Or did you not have to? Like, what were you hearing from those types of Republicans? Yeah, it was the same. I mean, you know, the, you, you want to build a coalition that can win. Uh, and so we wanted to be as inclusive as possible, uh, while also, you know, meeting people where they were. And when it came to January 6th, and, you know, having somebody who's going to protect our democracy, as opposed to what my opponent did, when it comes to reproductive freedom, uh, and, uh, you know, committing to work my tail off to codify Roe as opposed to, you know, trying to ban all abortions with no exception. 
Uh, it remind our listeners real quickly, what was Shabbat's position on abortion? What was he supporting that you found so antithetical to, you know, women's rights? So he, this has been his big thing. I mean, he, for 30, 40 years, he's been trying to, uh, you know, get Roe overturned. Uh, and, you know, he's got two bills in the clerk's office uh, that would establish a federal ban on abortions. And they don't provide exceptions. So he, his position is, and this, this is what he says in his Right to Life questionnaires, I support a federal ban on abortions without exception for rape or incest uh, and uh, the well-being of the mother. Uh, so I talk about the threat to our democracy and, you know, and the issue of reproductive freedom no matter where I I am uh, because it's so important, and I do believe it resonates with a lot of Republicans and a lot of independents and, and Democrats. Uh, but I also think the way we talk about the economy meets people where they actually are. Like, you know, the national narrative is around inflation. And yes, that's an issue, but that's just the latest issue that we're facing in terms of this broken economy, an economy that's been broken for decades. Like, this economy has serious structural issues. I mean, wages have not moved in any meaningful way in decades. So wage stagnation isn't new. And because of that, and the consolidation of, uh, you know, a bunch of companies that now set prices, the issue of prices being too high for most families is not new. And so Unlike my opponent, I didn't go in there and be like, hey, you know, gas prices are too high. and Like, yes, we all know that. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, I think you came to the the campaign trail with an advantage in that you weren't an incumbent for Congress. A lot of Democrats have had to sort of answer for the inflation concerns. You know, not that Biden, the party, could do a whole lot about that at this point, but certainly the party in power gets blamed. And But you being, you know a new candidate taking on a Republican incumbent definitely didn't have to be saddled with that. It's interesting. I'm curious if you felt the ground shift in the campaign when the Dobbs decision came down. Can you tell us about that? Like, was it instantly a different feeling? Like, what did you notice? Well, so uh, it's a great question. I, you know, but what I remember is that it sort of, it played out over the course of several months because remember there was the talk even in January and February was that it was going to happen. And then you you sort of lurch towards the summer, and then there's the leak. And that, you know, so it was like a slow burn in the sense that, like, it wasn't just this moment that we didn't anticipate. Folks knew it was going to happen. So I think the energy just was building, you know, Um, and it certainly picked up. And I did not see it, it wane, you know, and I do think that it's different in say, red states versus blue states. Because in blue states, for the most part, if you're in a state where your reproductive freedom has not been taken away from you or your family, you're going to approach the election differently, I think, than if you're living in Ohio, where reproductive freedom was taken from you. Uh, I mean, moments after, days after the Dobbs decision, as you know, there was a 10-year-old girl who was raped and had to go to Indiana to get an abortion, and they're still messing with that doctor. Uh, I believe they're messing with her. Indiana now, like, you know, she got in under the wire uh, because now Indiana says they would have turned her away. 
And so it, it's so real here and terrifying and so wrong. Did you talk about that 10-year-old girl and that situation a lot on the campaign trail? I mean, impress Shabbat on it? Yes and no. I mean, I, I talked about it where I felt like it was appropriate. I, um, I didn't. It's a 10-year-old girl. Yeah, it's a horrible situation. Yeah, I have a 12-year-old daughter. So it's hard to even think about, and you you just kind of want to leave them alone and not use the story in any way that would be exploitive. But at the same time, it's like it happened, and people need to understand that it's going to keep happening. No, the story I would lean on was our own or, you know, mine, and that is you know, before we had our first child, my wife had multiple miscarriages, but one where in the middle of the night, she, it was just terrible. And I found her, I heard a, you know, a thump, woke me up, ran into the bathroom. She was unconscious in the bathroom and there was blood everywhere. And I rushed her to the emergency room and you know, she had a miscarriage, and it was very intense and awful, and I thought she was going to die. Jeez. And she got health care. You know, by 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning, we were she was released, and we went and got some breakfast, and I remember that morning so well. Like, can you imagine not being able to call 911 or get into the car and go to the hospital or getting to the hospital and being turned away or getting health care and then getting investigated? So, you know, this is going to be an issue for a long time because, you know, yes, in New York and California and Massachusetts and other places, it may not be as important. But here, we are going to lose families. They are going to leave. And when graduates start to think about where they want to go, are they going to pick a state where they're fully free or are they going to pick a state where they're not? And, you know, I love this state. And I love this region and I love my city. And I want to be very clear with everybody who's thinking about this, not as a, you know, person who cares about reproductive freedom necessarily, but somebody who cares about their business and their workforce and whether or not this makes any sense at all for them. So, you know, we've got to, we've got to protect reproductive freedom in Ohio one way or the other and it's going to be a ballot measure or Congress's you know work but if we don't Ohio is going to people are going to get hurt some will die and our economy will be undermined significantly I want to pivot to President Joe Biden uh, for a few minutes so he obviously had a tough approval rating Um, I'm curious how much did that factor into your race obviously you know, a lot of Republican voters, not very popular with them. How did you sort of strike a balance when it came to Joe Biden in your district? So I talked about the issues that the people were talking about and that cared about and they wanted to hear about. I mean, they wanted to hear about the economy and what we were going to do to fix it. They wanted to hear about, you know, my position on reproductive freedom and, and, and my position on democracy and what needs to change. Uh, the same with, you know, gun safety and keeping people safe. You know, the gun violence in, in the city, uh, in the region is 
is hugely problematic because these guns keep coming in. I mean, we've got an amazing police department in the city that works really closely with the community, and they take so many guns out of the street every week, but they're inundated. We're inundated with these guns. And so people wanted to know, are you going to help us get deal with gun violence, both in terms of having police, but also getting these guns out of our neighborhoods? And so I think part of, you know, what was important and always is, is you talk about what people are dealing with and not necessarily, you know, this person's approval rating or that person's approval rating. I, he, you know, my opponent was obsessed with Biden and Pelosi for a couple reasons. One is because he's in D.C. and that's the world he lives in. He's not here anymore. So, like, I, I don't think he realized that that's not what people are talking about. People aren't sitting there being like, man, Nancy Pelosi. Like, I, if I started a conversation and said, I want to talk about Kevin McCarthy, people would be like, wait, what? And the same with Biden. It's like, yeah, people are frustrated uh, with what's going on. But nobody was like, I want to talk about Biden. Never. <laughs> yeah. Also, the Pelosi attack has been like a favorite for House Republicans like him for, for years now. It's never worked. People aren't sitting at home being like, I just want to come back to this this Nancy Pelosi person. You know, that's a she's really involved in my life and I got to just I got to keep t- you know like they're just not talking about it. The other thing is is like they don't have anything else right now. And they haven't in a long time. They don't have a tax policy a how we're going to meet this moment uh, in terms of the economy set of policies, what they do have scares the crap out of seniors, scares the crap out of families. You know, it's so unbelievable that people are struggling to say, okay, wait, 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 are they really going to cut Social Security? Yes. Are they really going to try to cut Medicare? Yes. They're going to say, oh, well, that, this is our inflation-fighting plan is to, you know, take money away from you. And so they end up with, well, we'll just, keep talking about Biden and Pelosi and hope it works. So you've mentioned some of these big issues in your district that have resonated with voters, guns just a few minutes ago, inflation and, and prices. We get a little bit uh, turned around, I think, talking about crime when it is crime, but it's gun violence in particular that that where Republicans and Democrats and independents are. That's the Venn diagram. It's like, okay, that's what they care about. They want to be done with gun violence, which does mean... There's common ground there should be in terms of police and supporting police and getting these guns out of our communities. Uh, And so, you know, if you ask if you ask people in polling, you know, what's your top issue? If you if they say crime, they may say crime. But if you change that to gun violence, they're going to say gun violence. Okay. now, but I'm curious, though, out of all these big issues that you're talking about on the trail, which one do you think resonated the most? Was it the GOP yeah. extremism big lie? Was it do you think it was the abortion issue? Which one do you think? I, I Look, I think it's all of it, but it's not one of those moments where like one issue, you know, is just so overwhelming. I mean, the economy and, and reproductive freedom and January 6th and the threat to our democracy are all top of mind with voters. And if there's a tie that binds, it's chaos and extremism. And that's where voters are just like, can everyone stop? Stop yelling at each other. Stop doing this crazy stuff with Trump. Restore this freedom that was taken away. And if we need to like work through what it looks like you know, in our state, that's fine. But don't take it away. 
And I do hope that part of what shifts uh, is the narrative around the economy, which is inflation is just what we're looking at right and talking about now, but it is part of a much larger issue of the economy just being broken, and it's been broken for decades. I want to ask one question. I should have asked this at the beginning, but did you know you were going to win? At what point in this race were you like, okay, at at any point did you feel like that, or was it? I'm Jewish, and so like... I'm anxious all the time, and you know, it's like I'm not going to let myself get there. And in order to pull something off like this, and the same was with the preschool, you know, I spent years uh, working to get that preschool deal on the ballot, and there was so much riding on it, just like there's so much riding on this race. I can't think about anything other than uh, making today, whatever that day was, as successful as humanly possible. And the same was true for election day. I stay at the polls until you can't vote, you know, like the line stops. So at 7.30, or 7.28, a car pulled in to where I was. And she's like, is there still time to vote? I was like, if you get out of your car really quickly. Run. (laughs) Yeah, and she did, and she got to vote. And then it was like, it was 7.30, and then it was 7.31, and my team was like, all right, you can't. There's nothing. Now you're just standing here. (laughs) So, no. Uh, A couple more questions for you. Um, I'm curious, you know, you've talked a lot about Republican extremism, but you're also in this sort of swing district, right? How confident are you that you can work with some of the Republicans up here in the House, especially given that a majority of them, you know, did object to Biden's win on January 6th? Um, I'm an optimist, so, you know, I'm very hopeful. Yeah, of course. I mean, my, my hope is that some of those folks that voted to like with Shabbat saw what happened here and in other places and knock it off, like stop doing this. There's no justification for it. It's, it's just dangerous. So come back to, you know, some sort of middle. But, uh, you know, having served on city council with Republicans and independents, and I know it's different, but we always, the, the majority of us are always working together well. It's what gets picked up in the media is the extremes. And when the extremes get all worked up and, you know, they go after each other, that gets covered. I mean, you know, it doesn't make for a good headline or a story to be like, oh, my God, this group of people are really working well together. Actually, it does here in Washington because it so rarely happens. Uh, yeah. So, you know, my hope is that, uh, you know, just like in any new experience, you find your tribe. And I expect that tribe to be Democrats and Republicans and people who, you know, you pick a couple issues that you believe are, are most important. Um, you know, I think the child tax credit is so critically important and there's got to be common ground on the child tax credit. It helped millions and millions of families pay their bills. So, you know, I'm so determined to try to figure out if there's an opportunity to bring Republicans and Democrats together around the child tax credit. We still have issues with violence and safety. So can't Republicans and Democrats work together to help local communities um, hire more cops and firefighters and do more community-based policing uh, where you're problem solving and you're dealing with these hot spots and can we do more to tackle gun violence in terms of common sense gun reform you know those are big ones where you have to imagine now it's it's 
you know, immigration is less immediately affecting, you know, Southwest Ohio, although it does, I have to imagine that there's common ground on, you know, comprehensive immigration reform. It's like infrastructure. It's something that everyone talks about. Let's do it, you know, and that does require, you know, putting more, you know, people uh, on the border, uh, including judges. Uh, and there's got to be, you know, a majority of folks in this new Congress that will will get that done. Uh, and so my hope is that the takeaway from both Republicans and Democrats is people want everyone to get to work. Like they're working their tails off and, you know, they're struggling financially and with a whole host of other things. Like do your job, get to work. Uh, final question for you, and I know you hate the Pelosi question because you know you were talking about her earlier. No, I don't. I don't. I don't mind. I don't. I don't mind. I get it. I, you know. Obviously, we're in sort of the situation here where we don't know what's going to happen with leadership, and and I guess I'm curious if you, you know, if you would support Pelosi for Speaker should Democrats keep the House, which I think is probably unlikely. But it's it's you know I obviously we don't know who's going to be in the majority. Mm-hmm. It's going to be slim. Um, one way or the other, so everyone's going to have to work together. And then I don't really know the process, so I'm—I'd like to be respectful to everybody that's, you know, going to want to talk to me about it. So uh, you know, I got to figure all that out as I really was focused entirely on this election and did not sort of pick my head up uh, until really yesterday. But as it relates to uh, Nancy Pelosi, I'll say this: like. I did work for her. That was something that, you know, they put in ads. That's right. Trying to convince voters that, like, I was somehow not for them because I worked for Nancy Pelosi 20 years ago. It's just so out of touch uh, and absurd. But she is one of the hardest working human beings ever. Insanely accomplished in terms of what she's been able to get done. And in this last term with, a slim, slim majority. And, you know, it's it's hard to imagine somebody being able to do what she's done. So, you know, I've got nothing but nice things to say about Speaker Pelosi. It also just shows how different things have become from just like a few years ago when, as you said, Shabbat tried to attack you because you worked for her, uh, trying to bring her up, use her as a, a boogeyman. And yet, like, even just last cycle or the cycle before. There's one of the things I take, I would never really mention this, but real quick, just he, she, he, yeah. she always pulled better than him in this district. It was always one of those things. It wasn't, you know, he was always in the, the high 30s and she was always in the low 40s. And it was like, I mean, you can keep going after her, but she's more popular with this group of voters. I mean, not by much, but, you know, enough to be like, hey, maybe you should talk about the things people care about. Sorry, I interrupted you. I just always thought that was. Yeah, no. No, it's fine. No, I I was just going to say, like, you know, a lot of Democrats in districts like yours, as recently as like last cycle and the cycle before, they had to basically say, you know, I'm going to oppose Pelosi for speaker, disavow her, etc. And now you don't even you don't even have to do that because it's not what people are talking about. Like you said, it's it's not what's resonating in the district. Anyway, well, thank you for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate your time on all of this. Yeah, thank you. This is great. Thanks. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Adam Allington is senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Amont is the executive producer and head of audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. 
I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.